Amen. Well, I would invite you, if you would, to please turn in God's Word to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, there are a number of them in the seats in front of you. There's two different editions, actually. So uh, if you're using one of those, it's going to be either eight, page 857 or page 911 in Acts chapter 3. And just a little bit ago, we heard from John chapter 20 about the fact of Jesus's resurrection. And this is a fact that all of the gospel accounts bear witness to, as does all of scripture. And in the book of Acts, where our text is found in chapter 3, this book tells us of the birth and the growth of the church following the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to heaven. And after he went back to heaven, the Holy Spirit was sent to fill and to empower his original disciples who then preached the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus. And in Acts chapter 3, in the first part of the chapter, in verses 1 to 10, we're told of two of Jesus' original apostles, Peter and John, going to the temple in Jerusalem. And as they go, they encounter a man who was uh, 40-something years old, who had been crippled. He had been lame since birth. And they miraculously heal this man. And this event, as we could imagine, astonished the crowd that was gathered at the temple. And the same people make up this crowd who had been a part of crucifying Jesus, of calling for Jesus' crucifixion some two months, little less than two months earlier. And so this very same crowd who was complicit in the murder of Jesus witnesses this miracle. And this becomes an occasion for Peter, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to preach the gospel. And to preach to these guilty souls, offering them eternal life through faith in Jesus. Now, we're going to really zero in on verses 17 to 26 in chapter 3, but I want to begin to read in verse 11 that gives us a little bit more of the context. This is after this miracle's taken place. Uh, this man is clinging to Peter and John, and in that context, with all of the crowds surrounding uh, this situation, Peter begins to speak to them. And so I'll pick it up in verse 11, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. So while he, the man who was healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. This was a portion of the temple. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Verse 17, and now, brothers, 
I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring, the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in you or in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer again as we seek his help. Oh, Father, there is none like you among the gods, nor are there any works like yours. And you have richly displayed and declared your beautiful and life-giving works of creation and providence and redemption. And as all of your works really coalesce in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Father, please open our eyes, please grip our hearts to behold the wondrous mystery of your love and your truth and all of your blessings in the Lord Jesus. Father, please grant us to taste and to see how good you are and how blessed are all who take refuge in Jesus. Please empower me now to preach your word faithfully as you have given it. And may we all praise and bless your holy name forever and ever. Amen and amen. Well, wow, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That declaration, which comes from Psalm 118, actually refers to the day of salvation that God has made in the Lord Jesus Christ. The day that he who was the stone that the builders rejected, in fact, became the cornerstone. And that's the ultimate day that is being spoken of in Psalm 118, the day that the Lord has made and that we should rejoice and be glad in. But we can understand as well that certainly even this specific day, April 9th, 2023, is the day that the Lord has made as well. And all of the intoxicating beauty that God has given within this specific day here in Northern California that millions of people are going to enjoy. A day filled with blue skies and warm sunshine and singing birds and blossoming trees and flowers and plants. Everything, of course, having been invigorated by all of the recent rains that we have had. 
And what tasty and abundant food many of us have already enjoyed with the meal that we shared here this morning. And maybe you've eaten and drunk other things in other places and certainly are going to throughout the rest of the day, even as millions of people are going to do. It's a reminder that a day such as today, this physical day, is a, is a gift of God's common grace, both to believers and to unbelievers. Indeed, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said that the Most High God is loving and good and kind and merciful even to ungrateful and evil people. Yes, God reveals from the beginning of his word to the end that he is unsearchably great and he is infinitely good and he delights to bless his people whom he has created. But for all of the rich earthly blessings that we find in God's common grace, nothing compares to God's spiritual blessings that he pours out in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to all who believe the blessings, the spiritual blessings of salvation through faith in him. And so in Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching the good news of Jesus to this sinful, bewildered, and astonished crowd. And again, these are the very same people who were complicit in the murder of Jesus a short time earlier. And Peter's aim, which is expressing God's aim and God's desire, is that these people, in spite of their undeniable guilt, would come to know the unimaginable blessings of God through faith in Jesus. He's extending an offer to them to be saved, to know God's forgiveness, to know refreshment in spite of the heinousness of their sin. And so God, through Peter, is inviting these people. He's actually commanding them to turn from their wickedness and to believe on Jesus. And for these people, and for every single one of us, this is the only way to know God's rich blessings in Jesus, is to repent and to trust Jesus, to turn away from our wickedness and our trust in ourselves and what we would pursue and to believe upon God's provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the text I read in chapter 3, in verses 11 to 16, Peter is speaking about both the crucifixion and the resurrection, but there's an accent of emphasis on the crucifixion. And for those of you who were here with us this last Friday evening, Good Friday, we looked at verses 11 to 16. Well, this morning, we're going to focus in on verses 17 to 26, which make reference certainly to the crucifixion, but also have an accent of emphasis on the resurrection. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, verses 17 to 26. And the main idea of what we find here, the big truth, the central truth is this. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God guaranteed his promised blessings to all who believe. 
in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God guaranteed his promised blessings to all who believe. That is the focus of everything that we find here. As we probe into the text in just a little bit more detail and we see God's guaranteed blessings in the resurrection of Jesus, there's really three different dimensions of those blessings that Peter highlights. And that's what I want us to take a few minutes to look at in our time together this morning. Three different dimensions, past, present, and future. These are the dimensions of God's guaranteed blessings in Christ, past, present, and future that I want us to look at and explore a little bit. So we'll start with the past, the past dimension, and it is this. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God fulfilled prophecy. In the past, now, as it has happened as a historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in that event, God fulfilled prophecy. And notice how Peter is emphasizing this from the very get-go in verses 17 and 18. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. He says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And so he goes on to say then in verse 21, just a few statements later, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And then if you slip down to verse 24, again he says, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. And so he's emphasizing that in what has taken place with the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has fulfilled prophecy. Now, because Scripture is the living word of the true and living God, God himself has vested his word with his own authority and truth. And the greatest and self-authenticating aspect of Scripture of God's word is this matter of prophecy fulfilled. And I should say prophecy fulfilled in history. And so in scripture, in the Old Testament, thousands of years before the coming of Jesus, God gave hundreds of prophecies anticipating the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Psalm 16, which I read a portion of at the beginning of our service, is one such place, and it contains some of these prophecies. There's many other places we could look to. Isaiah chapter 53, Ezekiel chapter 36, Joel chapter 2, and countless others. And all of the gospel records in the New Testament of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John All of these are saturated with words about how Jesus did and will fulfill every Old Testament prophecy with exacting detail. And so if you're going to reject God's word, if you're going to claim that God's word is not God's word, but it's nothing but a bunch of myth and a reflection of the well-intended imaginations of of good people, but you're going to reject it as God's authoritative word, 
The question for you is, what are you going to do with prophecy fulfilled in history, in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, Scripture is self-authenticating because it is God-breathed. It is God's very word given through human authors. Now, we would ask the question then, well, why is it that Peter so emphasizes fulfilled prophecy in Acts chapter 3? Why is he so emphatic about this? And the reason is because he is emphasizing God's absolute sovereign control over everything, including every detail of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It happened at the hands of sinful and wicked people. Their guilt was undeniable, but it also happened according to the plan and the purpose of God. Wilson, a little bit earlier, who's leading our music and our singing, made reference to Acts chapter 2, where there Peter talks about that very reality, that though the death and the murder of Jesus involved the wickedness of human beings, it was happening according to the purpose and the plan of God in fulfillment of prophecy. And so Peter is emphasizing this to emphasize that even though he's looking into the eyes and staring into the faces of some of the very people complicit in the murder of Jesus, he's saying ultimately this was happening according to God's perfect plan. It doesn't get them off the hook, but it radiates and it magnifies the sovereignty of God in fulfilling his purposes in Jesus. In spite of human sin and undeniable guilt, God's plan can't be thwarted. He is absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely in control. He was then and he is now and he always will be. God is absolutely sovereign. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Now listen, friends, in our own lives, we might easily believe the lie that there is no God and that we are not accountable to him. We might easily believe the lie that we can do whatever we want and get away with it and that there are no consequences for our sin. We might believe the lie that we can somehow escape death and God's judgment, even though we know that every human being on this earth inevitably dies. Friends, God is absolutely sovereign, and he powerfully rules over everything and everyone in all of his creation. And he is always working everything after the counsel of his will. And he perfectly fulfills everything that he has promised. And so the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the guarantee of God's promised blessings to all who believe. And the first dimension of this as it happened in the past in history, is God's fulfillment of prophecy when Jesus rose from the dead. Scripture is emphatic. Well, this leads to the second dimension of God's guaranteed blessing, not only in the past that he fulfilled prophecy in history, but the second dimension is in the present, namely that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God offers full forgiveness. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God 
offers full forgiveness to sinners, which is to say to every single one of us. And so look at what Peter says in verse 19 and moving into verse 20. This is the basis of his command, the basis of his invitation. He says, verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Can you imagine the audacity of that statement? Looking at the very people who in their unbelief and wickedness and ignorance consigned Jesus over to be murdered. And yet God through Peter says to them, you can be forgiven. Repent and turn to Christ and you can be forgiven and you can know times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. You see, just as we heard in John chapter 20, as our risen Lord commissioned his disciples there in verses 21 to 23 of John 20 to preach the good news of forgiveness in the power of the Holy Spirit, to preach how it is that a, that a sinner alienated from God in guilt could know God's peace and be at peace with him. That's what Peter is doing here in Acts chapter 3 through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's offering full forgiveness to these undeniably guilty sinners. And isn't it rich and wonderful how he describes this forgiveness at the end of verse 19, that your sins can be blotted out. That imagery and that picture is of ink on a document being completely removed. The ink on a document that would identify and specify and record every single one of our sins. He's saying that ink that is recording your sins and my sins and the sins of these people and the sins of all humanity, it can be totally blotted out, totally, permanently, eternally erased. In modern terms, we could say it this way. It means that all of our sins would be permanently deleted from the hard drive of God's eternal memory, never to be mentioned again. It's a beautiful statement that Gary read earlier from Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. For those whom God forgives, he says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness. When God gives forgiveness, the record is canceled. It's blotted out. It is eternally deleted. This is the offer of, of such unimaginable blessings of forgiveness to those who would repent. And then notice how Peter goes on to describe it at the beginning of verse 20, uh, that the experience of such forgiveness means times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Have you ever experienced in your life just being so utterly physically exhausted, tired in every way, mentally, emotionally, physically, that you just can't wait to go horizontal for hours and hours and hours and sleep? And if you have that opportunity when you are so exhausted, how typically if it's a good solid sleep, you wake up and what are you? Well, you're probably groggy a little bit, but eventually... You feel what? Refreshed. Refreshed. 
Why? Because your physical body has needed rest. Your mind, your soul, your emotions has all needed rest, and you've got some sleep, and so there's refreshment. Well, how infinitely greater is the soul refreshment that God offers, the soul refreshment that we can know when our consciences, which are dirty and defiled and weighed down and distressed, with the guilt of our sin, when that's blotted out, when it's removed, when it's permanently deleted, there is no refreshment, friend, like the soul refreshment of a cleansed conscience in the presence of God. If our conscience is not cleansed, if we are harboring sin and the guilt of our sin, and we don't know that refreshment of a cleansed conscience, With regard to God, what do we want to do? We don't want to be in his presence, right? We want to hide. We want to run. and We want to stay away because we know we're guilty. But it's only when we come to terms with our sin and and embrace the full provision um, for the forgiveness of our sin in the work of Christ that we come to know the refreshment of a cleansed conscience. And we can know that moment by moment. We know that in a, in a massive and a, and, a, and a significant way when a person first comes to faith in Christ. But even for any of us who are in Christ, as we fight sin, we constantly come back to the hope and the cleansing that we have in Jesus. That he has paid for all of our sins once and for all, past, present, and future. And that we look to him as the one who has forgiven and cleansed us. And so this is the offer of full forgiveness that Peter is giving, that God is giving through Peter, not only, of course, to these people gathered at that historical moment in Acts chapter 3, but to every single one of us in the present, in your life right now. He offers full forgiveness. Now, this, of course, has a very hard but vital implication for us to come to terms with regarding this offer of forgiveness For us to repent, for us to embrace and know the full forgiveness of cleansing in Jesus, it means we have to own our sin. We have to come to terms with the reality of our guilt and our sin before a holy God. We have to be humble. We have to be honest. We have to call our sin what God calls it, just like this crowd who was guilty of killing Jesus, the author of life. And you notice Peter doesn't mince any words when he puts before them the reality of what they've done. Very specifically and practically, for every single one of us, this means that we be careful not to minimize our sin, that we be careful not to rationalize our sin, that we be careful not to sanitize our sin or, or blame somebody else for our sin. It means we call our sin what God calls it, sin and wickedness and guilt and evil. We often err in that way, don't we? We'll say, oh, I, I made some really bad mistakes. Or we'll say, oh, I was a jerk. I was kind of a bad person. And No, what God says is we were wicked. We were evil. You see, sin is the result of hatred for and rebellion against the true and living and good God. Our sin is ultimately the high-handed expression of our pride and our selfishness and our self-worship, of exalting ourselves as the center of the universe rather than exalting and worshiping God. And fundamentally, when we hate and rebel against God, we often hate 
and harm other people made in his image. And our sin finds expression in this, that we easily use and harm and hurt other people in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. And it's all an expression of ultimately our ignorant rebellion against God. And so we have to see our sin for what it is. And maybe let me just give you some examples of this. For instance, if you're enslaved to pornography, have you ever thought about how you're using and abusing the people that you're looking at? People made in God's image. You're really wickedly worshiping them for your own pleasure rather than the God who is your creator. Or if you're easily given to being harsh and cruel and unkind with your words toward others. Have you ever thought about that in your heart, which is where those words are coming from, often we'll say, well, I didn't mean to say that. Well, no, you did mean to say it. That's the problem. And when I fall heir to that, I do mean to say it. That's the problem. I have a heart that is festering such hatred and destruction. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, when we're cruel and harsh with our words towards others, it's as if we're actually murdering them and destroying them in that way. People made in God's image. Or any kind of form of idolatry that we can easily be given to be it with money or possessions or success or relationships or sports or pets or hobbies or food or comfort or whatever it may be, with any idolatry that we may give into more than God, what are we doing ultimately? We're not trusting, worshiping, and delighting in the true and living God in whose presence there is fullness of joy. And you see, for these people that Peter is speaking to, God through Peter is extending his grace. He's extending his goodness. He's extending his mercy and his love. Overwhelmingly so, but people have to see their sin for what it is. You killed the author of life. And it's only when we're honest and humble about the reality of our own sin that we can come to know ever more fully the reality of God's full forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And we must listen to him and respond to him in faith. That's why, by the way, back in Acts chapter 3, Peter goes on to say what he brings up about Moses and this coming prophet that Moses speaks of, which is ultimately, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. So look there in verse 22 of Acts chapter 3. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. He's saying, listen to Jesus. Our life, our destiny, whether or not we know forgiveness, whether or not we know the fullness of God's blessings in Jesus is determined by how we respond to Jesus as he speaks to us through his word, even as we're hearing it now. It's all about whether we're listening and responding or we're ignoring and continuing to rebel and live outside of him under God's curse rather than under God's blessing. This is what Peter goes on to underscore, verses 24 and following. He says, All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him, they also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. 
He's, he's, he's speaking again this invitation, this command, turn from your wickedness. Repent. That's what repentance is. It's to turn from your wickedness and trust in yourself and to trust only in Christ and in all of God's provision in Christ. And implicit to that invitation and command is a warning. If you ignore what God is calling you to, if you ignore this invitation, if you don't turn, you will remain in your sins. You will remain under God's curse and judgment. You'll spend eternity in hell, separated from God under his judgment. So Peter's in essence saying, listen and take heed and know God's full forgiveness. Know life, know the blessing, the flourishing, the joyful happiness of the refreshment that God seeks to bring to your soul by you trusting in Jesus. And friend, you can know it now. If you've never turned to Jesus, turn now in your heart. Say, Lord, save me. I need you. I know I'm a sinner who has rebelled against you. Help me and save me. And he will. He's faithful. He's faithful to his word. Well, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God guarantees his blessings to those who believe. The first dimension of this is past as God fulfilled prophecy in the resurrection of Jesus. The second dimension, as we've seen, is in the present as God offers full forgiveness to those who would repent and trust Jesus. Well, now the third dimension is future. The third dimension is in the future, and it is this. In the resurrection of Jesus, God will bring total restoration. God will bring total restoration. And this is what we see at the end of verse 20 and then verse 21. So Peter says, and that he may send the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You see how he's again just interweaving this reality of all that God had promised prophetically in ages past. But he's speaking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has come once in fulfillment of what God had promised. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He died a horrible substitutionary death in fulfillment of what God had a promise so that he would become the sin bearer for those who would trust him. He's now risen from the dead. He has ascended to heaven where he is now as the God-man in the presence of the Father. And just as God has promised in his time, Jesus is coming again, and he will bring to fulfillment all that God has promised and purposed through him. And the essence of that is the restoring, the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And so as he's speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, this, of course, is still future I don't know if you've noticed, but in our world, presently, it's still very broken. Have you noticed that? Yeah. It's horrible. There's death. There's grief. There's sorrow. There's hatred. There's brokenness. We all know it, both personally, and both directly and indirectly, don't we? 
Christ has not yet come. But Christ and the Father, through the Holy Spirit, is doing His work, even in the proclamation of His truth, in saving people, in gathering those that He is calling to Himself. And there will come a day, friend, whether in our lifetime or sometime in the future, Jesus will return. And when He returns, He will restore all things. This is the third in the future dimension of of the guaranteed blessings that are secured and guaranteed in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's what's so massive and here's what is so wonderful and incredible about this promise of restoration. You see, to the people that Peter is speaking to, the people that Peter is preaching to, along with Peter himself, they are Jews. They are people who are presently living under the iron hand of the Romans. The kingdom, in essence, had been taken from the Jews. And so every Jew, including Peter himself, was anticipating the coming of the Messiah who was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. That's why, and we won't take time to go there, but back in Acts chapter 1, After Jesus has risen, but before he ascends up into heaven, his disciples ask him in verse 6 of of Acts chapter 1, Jesus, when is it you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus tells them it's not for them to know the times or the epochs. And he goes on to remind them of their mission to be bearing witness of him and to preach the gospel. But what's interesting is that even the apostles, the Jewish apostles, and even even the Jews, they're looking for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. But you see, what is Peter talking about here in Acts chapter 3? He's not just limiting it to the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. He's speaking about the restoration of all things. And as we go on to learn through the rest of the New Testament and and all of the revelation that God is pleased to give through all that follows this time in Acts chapter 3 that we now have in the New Testament, he's speaking ultimately about the coming and the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth that he will usher in with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the people were expecting one thing, but Jesus is saying, and God is saying through Peter, no, the restoration is going to be of all things. Friend, there is coming a new heaven and a new earth when Jesus returns. And with that will come the final, total, complete destruction and judgment of all evil and all wickedness, all evil people, all wicked people and rebellious people. Absolute judgment will be brought to final fulfillment. And God will bring in through Jesus the new heavens and the new earth in perfect righteousness. This is what we learn in the book of Revelation. This is what it's all ultimately about. What God is doing in and through Jesus and what he will yet do when Jesus returns to bring total restoration. Let me just read you one portion of this in Revelation chapter 21. As John, the apostle John, is given this vision of of all that is going to transpire when Jesus returns. And just hear the first four verses Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Beloved, that's yet future, but that is the hope for every believer that Jesus will come again and that when he comes again, he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth where death will be no more. And oh, what certain and persevering hope this brings for God's people. Even as we live in this broken world now, even as we grieve, even as we groan, even as we face burdens and distresses, we look to that reality that a better day is coming. And even as we look to that future hope, we trust God's present grace and help through his spirit and all the means that he's given to sustain us and enable us to persevere and to obey and to trust him. And so friends, All of these are the dimensions of God's guaranteed spiritual blessings in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the past, he has demonstrated that he fulfilled prophecy. In the present, he even now still offers full forgiveness to guilty sinners just like you and just like me and just like every human being. And in the future, God will bring total restoration, total restoration restoration, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, as we draw this to a close, let me ask you then a question. Where is your expectation today? Or where are maybe your expectations today? In other words, even as you awoke this morning, even as you got yourself together and made yourself ready to come here, and even as you came here Where were or where are your expectations? What is it that you are hoping for? What would you like God to do for you? Could be another way of asking the question. Back in Acts chapter 3, remember this miracle that God does through Peter in healing this crippled man. I want to just highlight uh, this if you look back at the beginning of chapter 3 because it's amazing. Because what God did in healing this man so far exceeded his expectation. We can't even imagine what it must have been like. So look at chapter 3 and verse 1. We'll just read a little bit about how this unfolded. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. That is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the table temple. Now, what is this telling us? It's telling us this man is not only lame, he's not only crippled, and he's been that way from birth. And by the way, we know in Acts chapter 4 and verse 22 that he was more than 40 years old. So we know that he's not only lame and crippled from birth, but what else is he? He's a beggar, which probably tells us he has no family. Some people were probably in the habit of carrying him there so he could beg for alms, beg for money. He's like a panhandler on the side of the street looking for money. This was his daily existence and his daily experience. So he's crippled, he's poor, 
He's probably without family. And listen to what happens. So verse 3, Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Just like he did with everybody, every second of his poor, uh, miserable life, he's asking for money. He's asking for a handout. Verse 4, Peter directs his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. It's his expectation. I'm going to get a little bit more money, maybe a few more quarters, maybe a dollar. That's his expectation. But Peter says to him, verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by his right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Can you imagine what this would have been like for this man? Crippled since birth, poor, destitute, again, likely without family thinking he's maybe going to get a little bit of pocket change from Peter and John. And what happens in an instant? He's healed. Would you be leaping and walking and praising God? I sure would be. We all sure would be. He got so much more, so much more than what he expected or hoped for. And you see, it's not incidental that this is the nature of the miracle that took place. Because we're intended to imagine what it must have been like for this man. And yet as great and as marvelous and as incomprehensible as experiencing that kind of a physical miracle must have been. Can you imagine how much more it would be like to be spiritually dead? And to be brought to life through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, this man in his earthly existence represents our own meager, small, earthly expectations. We so easily are blind to spiritual realities. And yet God wants us to see even in this man something of ourselves. Because before God spiritually, every single one of us are crippled. We're helpless. We're broken. We're poor. We're alienated from God. But in the hope of the gospel, friends, in the hope of the guaranteed blessings that God has revealed and declared through the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection, he offers new life. He offers wholeness. He offers forgiveness. He offers reconciliation to him. He offers eternal hope. And indeed, what times of refreshing then this man knew physically What times of refreshing God offers to everyone who would look to Christ and believe on him and know God's blessings in Jesus crucified, risen, and coming again. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, I simply pray that each one here listening to this, others perhaps with us online, others who may listen to this in days to come, 
would indeed come to know your fullest blessings in Christ. So many do, and how we rejoice in that. The work of salvation that you've done in any of us is a miracle of miracles that defies any physical miracle. And we rejoice that you have been pleased to give new life That so many of us in your grace have come to know full forgiveness. We've come to know times of refreshing in your presence, even as we see and we grieve over the the reality of our sin and our rebellion. Lord, may each one know your blessings, know your happiness, know your joy and flourishing in fullest measure through faith in Jesus. And may you strengthen that in each one for your glory and for your purposes. We pray in his name. Amen and amen.